is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. January 27th is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's birthday. Born in 1756, his short life of 35 years realized the prolific composing power of more than 600 pieces. The list of composers who have been influenced by the boy Wonder's genius is long, and one of those who wrote in the shadows of Mozart's genius was Beethoven. So on the eve of Mozart's birthday, it is perfect that I have as my guest author Howard J. Smith, who has written on both of these composers. I celebrated his book, Beethoven in Love, Opus 139, several years ago on Center Stage, and Howard has not been idle since then. His most recently published book, Meeting Mozart, a novel drawn from the secret diaries of Lorenzo da Ponte, is the work that we celebrate today. How fitting that our author introduces us to an interesting perspective, which is the profound importance of Mozart's most noted librettist, Lorenzo da Ponte, who collaborated with the composer for Le Nozze di Figaro, Così van Tutte, and Don Giovanni. In meeting Mozart, we are drawn into a flight of fancy and fact as Howard J. Smith winds his way through historical fiction. Journalist and author Patricia Morris-Rowe has described meeting Mozart as the musical equivalent of the Da Vinci Code. And I would agree. The book combines a treasure hunt of facts played out with beguiling characters. And with the added dynamic that Howard brings to his writing as a former television executive and screenwriter, I see the potential for movies based on his writings here wafting in the distance. And now, Center Stage with Howard J. Smith. Good morning, Howard. It is great to have you again. Thank you, Pamela. It's wonderful to be back here. We had a lot of fun a few years back on the last interview. Looking forward to doing that again today. So I understand that your beginnings are really tightly wound in writing. Can you trace your steps backwards a little bit? How did you come to writing in the beginning? I've been a writer my whole life, basically. I was writing stories in elementary school, uh, through high school, through college. Um, And I had an opportunity as a young man to go to the Breadloaf Writers Conference. I was both awarded fellowships and scholarships there, uh, three out of the four years. And then during that time, I got to work with some very wonderful and famous writers, Toni Morrison, John Irving, uh, the novelist Tim O'Brien, and my mentor, John Gardner. Um, so over those four or five years, I got a really wonderful grounding in writing fiction. Um, and after that, I came out um, after publishing about a half dozen short stories. Someone came to one of my workshops um, in D.C. where I was participating in this, another fellowship class at uh, GW, the Jenny McKee and Moore Fellowship Program. And they said, you know, if you work in Hollywood, instead of writing a novel, two, three, four hundred pages, you write 26 pages with a lot of white space for a sitcom and you earn a lot of money and you get residuals. Um, <laughs> and ironically to this day, I still get residuals from some of the sitcom pieces that I've written 25, 30 years ago. Although the checks may be five figures, but two of them are on the right side of the decimal point. And after <laughs> two, it's usually down to one figure on the left side, 
it's it's kind of comical. Um, But yeah, you you can earn money. So I moved out to Hollywood, um, was a screenwriting fellow at the American Film Institute, left there, worked at ABC TV for a couple of years, Embassy Television, which was Norman Lear's old company. Mm. Norman had just left himself. But I worked with all of Norman's people, worked on a lot of TV movie projects, uh, dramas, documentaries, sitcoms, TV series over those years. You name it, I did it. And then I was able to segue back to writing. Um, One of the things most people are not aware of is that when you work in Hollywood as a screenwriter, you can build an entire career and get paid and none of your stuff ever makes it to the air. Um, Mm. You know, out of the typical, for every movie you see or every TV series you see, there's probably 20 to 30 to 40 that the same studio or production company had paid for, developed, worked with um, for production, and it didn't get the final green light. So after years of doing that, um, I segued back into doing some business writing, uh, finance, and so forth, did that until finally, um, you know, five years ago, I published the first edition of the Beethoven novel. And, you know, continued working. And now the the Mozart just came out this month. So I'm actually thrilled to be back writing fiction full time again. That's very exciting. Very exciting indeed. Can I ask, does coming out of a life as a screenwriter, how does that affect your approach to a novel? Well, it actually is very significant. I didn't realize how much it was until I went back and started working on the Mozart. One of the things about writing a screenplay is what you're doing is you're creating a document that's usually about 110, 120 pages with a lot of white space in between. And you're asking somebody, a production company, a producer, to invest 50 to $100 million in those pages. Um, And you don't really want to put anything in those pages that's going to cost extra money, although that's not your prime consideration when you're writing. But you're very brief and very to the point, very succinct. And you don't spend a lot of time doing the ornamentation that a lot of writers and novelists often get distracted by. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back and writing fiction again, what you learn in screenwriting is it's all muscle and bone. You don't have a lot of excess fat. And for example, if I describe a meal that someone's eating in the novel, it's because what they're eating is actually relevant to the story. Um, in one case, there's a rabbi who one of our characters meets who's eating pork routinely. It's not kosher. Why is he doing that? Because he's just finished surviving World War II in poverty. Um, and if he hadn't eaten that pork, he would have starved to death. Right. Um, so all of those little tiny things, even though they may be minor seeming at the moment, all have a certain reverberation somewhere down the line. Nothing is there that's wasted. Uh, nothing is there just once. It always comes back. And like a good composer, when it comes back a second time, it is always slightly different from a different angle, a different point of view, or a different character talking about it in a slightly different way. So you always get something that's fresh. You're never repeating information um, in a fashion that's remotely boring or inconsistent with the story. But one of the things I I taught at UCLA for five years in the writer's program, one of the things I learned uh, from speaking to musicians and composers is that the structure of a musical composition and the structure of a story or a novel are essentially the same. You're telling a story and you're trying to communicate 
uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, whatever they are, to your audience, whether it's a reader or a listener. And you need to have the same basic fundamental principles of construction. You're taking someone in, you're taking them on a journey, you're experiencing a certain degree of conflict and a certain degree of resolution, and then you finally bring them to an end, to a conclusion that is satisfactory for the composer or the writer's purpose. You take them where you want them to go. Very well said. And that emotional experience, you know, they're in. Um, After you left Hollywood, and I'm just kind of guessing that perhaps you know, maybe you burned out in Hollywood. Maybe you had, an, you know, you had your years in Hollywood and then that was enough. You wanted to get back to your solid writing. Am I on the right track here? Well, I, working in Hollywood is extraordinarily difficult. Um, I actually did a book called Opening the Doors to Hollywood, which is a bit of a textbook. And it's also based on a class I did teach at UCLA about how you break into Hollywood as a writer, how you try to attempt to market your books, your novels and so forth. Um, But it remains an extraordinarily difficult career. Uh, It is a career for young people. The executives at most studios and networks are young because they're willing to work 80-hour weeks and do all the networking necessary to stay stay busy and to know people and to know what's going on. Um, And you tend to age out. Uh, You get into your 40s, you don't work. I've had very many close friends from the industry um, who, as they got into her later 40s, suddenly after being extraordinarily successful, um, suddenly find themselves unable to get work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, they're financially fine by that point in their lives. They've made enough money. But creatively and, and life-wise, they're completely dissatisfied and unhappy because they can't work. They can't do with that which they love. Um, and so the numbers game is constantly at play there. It's extraordinarily difficult. Um, and the challenge is are also difficult when you're actually writing. Um, unlike a novel where you have total control over what you're putting on paper, creating a world journal. When you're doing a screenplay, it's a collaborative between you, um, the person who might have created the story and you're given the assignment, the producer who you're working with has a, their vision, the network or the studio has their vision. And when it gets made, the director, yes, or she has an absolutely other different vision. So you're, you're just submitting your work and lots of other people work on it and you get pushed around a lot. And the writer is also, unfortunately, other than actors, the least respected person in the process. You have the least power. Um, I, I find that unbelievable. I mean, when you look back at, at the great writers involved in the history of Hollywood, but yet they are overlooked and uh, just watching um um, uh, Mr. Fincher's new film, Mank, um, right. about Mankiewicz and, and the writing of Citizen Kane. I mean, this, this is a really good example um, where he was anonymous in the background, but yet didn't want to be and, at that point. And you don't think about it as a Mankiewicz film. You think about it as somebody else's movie. It's never. And again, but w- this is one of the things that actually attracted me back to Mozart and De Ponte. Writers never got credit, even in the opera. Mm-hmm. It's actually even worse. And that's also rights with the opera world that even when I bought a book that had the Mozart, De Ponte libretti in them, you didn't find De Ponte's name anywhere except way buried on the inside. Oh, written by this. And that was taken to an extreme, I'll add, um, during the Nazi era in Germany, before the war and even through the war, when opera was still being performed in a lot of German towns, 
that Germany really was never under attack until late in the war. The only versions of Mozart's operas they would perform were in German. They would all be translated. And because de Ponte, um, even though he became a Catholic priest, was born a Jew. That was anathema to the Nazis. So they basically deleted de Ponte's name from all the libretti he had actually wrote, and they substituted the name of the translator who took it from Italian into German. Mm-hmm. So de Ponte was made invisible. And that related to the novel as well, where my characters who begin post-World War II, um, it is an Italian-American GI who we start with, who is a descendant, though he doesn't know exactly how, of de Ponte. He returns to the village in northern Italy outside the Veneto, where his family, his parents, had come from at the beginning of the 20th century. He is a Conliano, and de Ponte's uh, actual birth name was Emanuele Conliano. He is Italian from that town. And he is given um, what had been passed down from several generations, what we call the secret diaries of Lorenzo de Ponte. And Mm -hmm. his diaries, which are complete fabrication, um, but inspired by actual true events, it is a description of de Ponte's life working first in Venice, then Vienna and um, Prague and back and ultimately in America, where he describes his life as a, as a crypto Jew, as a converso, and all the issues he has to deal with. And we parallel that with the story of his descendants in the 20th century, we're also dealing with those very same issues. And the ultimate bottom line or the theme of the novel is how does a Jew survive in an essentially hostile world? Mm-hmm. And that was Auntie's experience trying to accomplish what he wanted to do, which was to be a poet, a writer, a librettist um, through his life and all the struggles he had during that time. You know, it's extraordinary that even many professional musicians, Howard, do not know the extent of the the rather scurrilous um, life that, that Lorenzo de Ponte actually lived. And many of us don't understand about the nine lives or maybe more uh, that de Ponte lived. I mean, you know, starting out in Italy and then going into the Germanic countries, ending up in America running a deli. Now, this is something that not all of us are aware of. Can can you kind of walk us through uh, getting to know de Ponte? Let me start with let me start with New York first and go Mm -hmm. then backwards. Ponte came to New York when he was 55 years old. He lived in New York City for another 33 years. He lived to be 89 years old. He, in New York, was friends with William Jennings Bryant, James Fenimore Cooper, Joseph Bonaparte, who was living in New York in exile, Clement Moore, who wrote The Night Before Christmas. Most importantly, though, Clement Moore's father was the Episcopal Bishop of New York, who also ran Columbia College, what is now Columbia University. DuPont eventually became the first professor of Italian at Columbia, first priest to teach there, which I'll talk about in a moment, and the first Jew to teach there. Um, He also, more importantly, though, was the first one to bring an opera theater and create an opera theater in New York. He did it twice, in the 1820s and again in the 1830s. And of course, his first production was Don Giovanni. Um, In his box, all of those famous luminaries I just mentioned, they also were contributors to starting these operas companies. And these two companies basically paved the way ultimately for the Met to exist. Without de Ponte, there may never have been a Metropolitan Opera. 
But let me go back to his childhood a little bit. Pompey was born 1749, almost exactly 200 years before I was. He was born a Jew. Now, if you reverse the order of the three operas he did with uh, Mozart, and the that is essentially DePonte's life. He was embellishing all of these um, libretti with his own knowledge of his own life. So if reverse, Cosi Fan Tutte, uh, basically girlfriend swapping, wife swapping, having affairs, then you segue into a Don Giovanni kind of life. And then ultimately Figaro, that is Giovanni. I mean, that is DePonte. He was a Casanova as a young man, he, even though he was a priest. Um, he was... A Don Giovanni character. He had a wild uh, life. When he was a priest, he was assigned to a church in Venice uh, as a very young man, and he may have coincidentally crossed paths with Mozart um, in 1771. Mozart would have been a very worldly 15 at that point in time, and De Ponte was a very naive 22-year-old newly ordained priest. They both, however, loved the poet Metastasio, and Metastasio's operas, libretti, were performed frequently in Venice at that point, particularly the, the Teatro San Benedetto, which later burnt down. Um, and even on Mozart's birthday, January 27, 1771, they both may have been at the theater that same night and may have crossed paths, which is an incident I play with in the novel as a possibility before their actual known meeting approximately 10 years later in Vienna. Um, where De Ponte becomes the court poet. He is, gets there with a letter of introduction to Salieri, of all people, the same Salieri from uh, Amadeus that we know, although very different man in real life, um, and becomes that poet for the next 10 years. During that time, he is introduced to Mozart by a, another um, duke who is a converso as well, uh, who had actually supported Mozart prior to introducing him to De Ponte. And together, they come together to write Figaro, Don Giovanni, and Cozy over the next uh, seven years or so. Until De Ponte, who was always led this wild and somewhat crazy life, which, again, was not that different from his good buddy Mozart in uh, um, he gets thrown out of, he had gotten thrown out of his teaching assignment, got thrown out of Vienna, he got thrown out of uh, Venice, makes his way to London at, at his, just before he turns 40. And I should add, he gets married at age 40 after deferring all other romantic relationships by saying he's a priest, he can't marry. At age 40, he gets married to another converso, Nancy. Um, and they get married back in Vienna. I mean, I'm sorry, in the Veneto, near, outside Venice, they sneak back in. He is forbidden to be there. He's been expelled. Plus, he's not allowed as a Jew to associate with any other Jews. The church, which had a lot of secular authority, would have had him killed, uh, sent to the stocks or pilloried or sent to the galley as a galley slave. If he had done that, if he'd been caught, they get married by a rabbi at age 40. He then, after having all of these affairs through all of his youth, he becomes a faithful husband for the next 45 roughly years of his life um, until Nancy passes away in the early 1830s in New York. Actually lives, by the way, in New York for 33 years, longer than he lived anywhere else in his life. But this even is extraordinary. Or early 19th century New York was as anti-Semitic as any other place at that time. And he never let on, um, except his closest friends, that he'd been born a Jew. 
in his known diaries, the public diaries, I call them, he never once describes his Jewish heritage. He was converted at age 14 unwillingly because it ripped him apart from all of his friends and his life uh, and his probable girlfriends at that time. He loved women. He loved girls. He was a philanderer. But he had an opportunity, and he was a polymath. He was as much a genius as Mozart, which is also not known. He was absolutely brilliant writer, extraordinarily talented, um, but he never had a formal education until he was converted. And one of the things that happens at conversion is you take the name, in this case, he took the name of the bishop who did the conversion, and he connived with the bishop to get him into the seminary so he can get an education, um, which he does. But the end uh-huh. road education is to become a priest. As I said, he was a horrible priest. He gets sent to Venice. He never once mentions in his actual diaries, known diaries, anything about actually being a priest or theology or anything about Catholicism whatsoever. He could care less. All he's interested in is doing confession and finding out which women he might want to go out with after they finish their confession. That's about the extent of his Catholicism, other than doing Mass on Sundays. During the week, he would whore, gamble, and play around and and have girlfriends. music that has drawn you? I've always loved music. Um, I can't work. Even as a child, when I was studying for school, I always had music on in the background. Um, My dad, for example, loved the Russians. He is, you know, their family was from Eastern Europe. Um, They grew up with that music. Uh, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky, that was in his blood, basically. So I would listen and being, you know, from New York, we had WQXR back then. I think it's still around to this day. Um, that's what we listen to at home, other than the rock and roll that I also grew up with. So I've always loved music. I just could not do it. Um, when I was in film school many, many years ago, the producer, director, uh, Robert Wise, was one of my teachers. And he did The Sound of Music, uh, West Side Story. He understood music. He understood t- storytelling with music. And he said very simply this. When you're writing a play, it is about what people say to each other. When you're writing a novel, it is about what people think inside their head and what they reflect upon. When you're filming a movie, it is about what people see and experience through their eyes. To which I would add, when you're writing an opera, it is about what people feel expressed through emotions in those songs. It is about the emotion. Still, however, to get to those emotional moments in, in writing an opera, you need to have a story that willingly takes your reader, to that point, which I'll add another wonderful line by by my other mentor, John Gardner, as a novelist. John had this vision of writing, which was called the Vivid Continuous Dream. It was such a great concept. I actually named my class at UCLA the Vivid Continuous Dream. 
And what John said is when you're creating a story, what you're doing is creating a vivid and continuous dream in the reader's mind that's so all-encompassing and so all-powerful that the next thing they know, someone's taking them to dinner or calling them to dinner. Anything you write that breaks that dream, this is the important corollary, anything that breaks that dream is no good. Throw it out, no matter how brilliant or wonderful you think it is. So what you end up with is kind of a seamless, well-edited writing that is that screenplay muscle and bone. And then the final corollary of that is whatever you put on the last page is also an expression of what you believe as a writer, whether you're aware of it or not. So the ending is something you know in the beginning. When I wrote the Beethoven novel, I knew that I was going to begin and end with the moment of his death when he is shaking his fist at the heavens and then collapses back dead on his bed. And I knew with DePonte, I knew that the very end, which I'm not going to tell you because that's a spoiler alert, um, I knew that before I started writing. I knew that everything that was in that story had to take the writer, the reader there in a way that was seamless and held their interest and got there. And I think when I had Patricia Morrisow get back to me and say, Howard, you did it. Um, or Russell Martin, who'd written Beethoven's hair, say the same thing about the Beethoven. No, you're there. You got it. You did it. You pulled it off. That the story held you um, so much so that even experts in the field, whether it was reading the Beethoven novel at the American Beethoven Society and describing it, reading a chapter of fiction to a panel of experts and having them love it, or getting Jan Swafford, who'd written the biographies of Beethoven, Mozart, um, and Brahms, Jan loving this novel as well, um, because it was true to the historical character, but it was also, as Robert Wise said, it's what people think. What was de Ponte thinking about as he worked with Mozart? What was their life about? What was important to him? What was important to them? And how do you get there and then make it entertaining for an audience? As Beethoven said, you never want to bore your audience. Thank you to my guest, author Howard J. Smith. And I hope you will visit Center Stage with PamelaCoon.com for our entire interview on Zoom. Until then, the curtain is now down on Center Stage. Osservate, leggete con me, osservate, leggete con me. In Italia 640, 